Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Andy. My fact is that if you took all the hedges in Britain and laid them end to end, they would stretch to the moon and most of the way back. Crappy ending to that. <laughs> How far back? Basically, figures vary about the exact length, but it would definitely get you all the way there, and it would definitely not get you but all then, the way back. All the alien sheep that you're kind of herding into this <laughs> gap between the Earth and the moon, they'd be yeah. able to escape from that last little gap. Well, I don't think they would, because there's one layer of hedging solidly between the two. Yeah, but the thing is with fences, you yeah. need them on both sides oh, of yeah. a field. Yes, what I stupidly imagined is a sort of double row of hedging that runs out halfway back, but you uh. don't actually, you don't need that. Basically, the UK has about 700,000 kilometres of hedges. Some people say there are only about 500,000 kilometres of hedges, Ooh. so the figures do vary, but it definitely is between <laughs> one and two times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. <laughs> right, yeah. Right? That's quite oh, a I big see. discrepancy, 200,000 kilometres. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite hard to survey. There are quite good ways of measuring now, as in you can use satellites to measure the distances. Who has the hard. time, though, to go through all the hedges from satellite imagery? It feels like you have the answer to that question and you're just teeing me up. No. <laughs> and with that, James quit the podcast to start his hedge measuring career. I was just thinking that I think if you have satellite imagery, there's more important things to do than work out whether it's 200,000 or 300,000 or whatever yeah, it was. It's true. It's true. I'm but, saying this, by the way, as someone who has been active in the hedge community in the past. What do you mean? When I lived in the countryside in the Lake District, yeah. when I moved in, mm-hmm. one of the first people to come around was a couple saying, would you be interested in getting involved with the hedges? Right. And it does sound like a swinging thing, but <laughs> yeah, it totally really wasn't. <laughs> Basically, um, in Silverdale, where I lived, so it's just outside the Lake District, the hedges were very important because they have a lot of wildlife, and we wanted to save them. I only went to one or two meetings. Okay. So what, what happened at those meetings? Part of it, you might go around like, picking stuff out of the hedges, like oh, cleaning nice. the hedges and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, but mostly you're just trying to stop people from cutting the hedges down. Just like vigilante wandering the countryside, <laughs> throwing yourselves at farmers with I machetes. Feel like that was probably in the third meeting yeah. that all that stuff happened. <laughs> like the Extinction Rebellion side of it, mm. I think that yeah. came later. It was mostly just chatting about hedges. Was it, James, the National Hedge Laying Society? I don't, I don't recall very well, but okay. I don't think so. It was a long time ago. This. There are a few different hedge bodies. Yeah. Um, but isn't this the one granddaddy body of... Hedging. I, I, I mean, the National Hedge Laying Society are huge. You want to talk about hedge laying then, Andy? Which do. is different, of course, to James's hedge um, rubbish clearance. Absolutely. The National Hedge Laying Society and the National Hedge Maintenance Society are the jets and the sharks <laughs> of the hedge world. Yeah. Vicious, vicious knife fights between them whenever they meet. Life on the hedge. <laughs> God. But it is, it is really cool hedge laying. I didn't know cool. about it. I, no. I didn't know what it was. And it is literally making a hedge lie down. Isn't it? It's flattening a hedge, isn't huh? it? Essentially. So, so the hedge pre-exists. A hedge has to pre-exist to lay a hedge. Yes. Wow. 
Otherwise, you're just building a hedge, I guess. That's So that's what I got confused about. But you I do have these... to plant a hedge, don't you? Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, you're planting a hedge into an already existing hedge. What? So hedge, basically, this is a way of maintaining the hedges, which is very important that we do because they're so biodiverse and stuff. And so you've got to stop them growing too high, too tall, sure. because if the trees that make up a hedge turn into mature trees, then they eventually die. And also their like trunks shoot up and they don't have any foliage at the bottom and there are big gaps in the hedge and all the sheep get through. And so what hedge laying is, it's really clever you turn the hedge from vertical to horizontal essentially so you do this by kind of cutting the upright trunks at the base uh, so you like make a little slit mm. in the upright trunk but you don't cut it all the way down to the bottom because you really don't want to kill the trunk you've got to keep the sap flowing up it mm. and when you split it you bet you can bend it over as right. you can imagine yeah. like a hinge so that it lies down and then when you do that then it will start growing new oh, hedgery really? upwards oh. so you've got to keep on bending it over so a new youthful That's bit shoots That's up great. i didn't know that wow. and it's called pleaching pleaching the pleach and the ligger is the bit on a hedge that's horizontal wow. if you have one wow. that's good new words bleaching yeah. and liggering bleaching most hedges I've seen in the photos while researching this they sort of look like they've been blown to a 45 degree angle by the wind it's very controversial the angle at which you should put it mm. um, and there are 35 different types of hedge laying and people say 30 degrees 45 occasionally I don't know where you saw this hedge oh, it was on actually the official body's website so right so they've made it's a statement a, with it's that a angle. Good website, isn't it? The National Hedge Laying Bodies I, website. I think that's being very kind. Um, it's, <laughs> it's nice. It's pleasant. Wow. What do you think are its main drawbacks? I, I, to be honest, I looked at it and thought I might get in touch and just give some suggestions. <laughs> I thought there was a lot of information wow. missing. Wow. There was a lot of really? um, yeah. The, the you know there was a lot more they could do with their annual award for best hedge. Um, what could they do? Well, <laughs> more photos, more understanding of what had happened. You know, it's if you're a novice like me coming to it, like match reports, yeah, because they do have an annual championships. Like they you're do. right, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, yeah, the I, national hedge laying championship. I did want a bit more prose actually of of what had happened each in each year's championship. Exactly, they just give just, the kind of winners and the runners up. Can I? Sorry, can I just ask a question? Is it for the person who's best at bending the hedges, or is it for the actual best hedge? Great question. I would have loved to have got the answer <laughs> as I read the website. Uh, I did get the answer from the website. Which <laughs> It's the former. It's not the best. It's, it's the it's it's you. It's the person who's laying the hedge. Yeah, it's the hedge. Yeah. You have to prize. scroll down. On, so there's a bar at the side of a website often, and if you click the down arrow at the bottom, is that what it is? You get more. It's like turning a page, but on your laptop. It's amazing. Because right. I presume like hedges are hundreds, if not thousands, of years old, right? Uh, and they don't change that much from year to year. So whatever's the best hedge in 2019 is likely to be the best hedge in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. Do you know how to tell how old a hedge is? No. Ask it nicely. There's a thing called Hooper's Rule. No, it's mm -hmm. very rude to ask a hedge its age. <laughs> oh, right. Um, there's a thing called Hooper's Rule. It's named after a guy called M.D. Hooper, who is one of the people who invented it. And you take a 30-yard stretch of hedge, you count the number of species in it, you multiply that number by 110, and then you add 30 years, and that will tell you exactly how old a hedge is, and it's called Hooper's Rule, and it was published in the 70s, and almost immediately, uh, someone else did a publication saying it's complete bollocks. Oh, <laughs> no. At very best, it can give you an approximation, and you should always use village or council or parish history. 
Also, that's going to be a hell of a lot quicker than counting meticulously all the species <laughs> in a hedge. But yeah, there's a guy, and this was in the article that you sent, Andy, where you found your fact from, where he spent two years, he's a British ecologist, spent two years looking at all of the species inside one particular bit of hedgerow. And he counted 2,070 in total over those years. And this is not the wood. This is like, you know, little ants and animals and, and so mm. on. And, and he's, yeah. he's amazing. Robert Walton. He was challenged during a car journey by another friend of his, another naturalist. I'm not sure what the exact terms of the challenge were, but it's basically, why didn't you study that hedge for a very long time? <laughs> and he spent a year on it. And he's like, God, I'm still getting loads every single week. So he spent another, he spent a second year on it. It was incredible. He reckoned there were more than 3,000, but he could only count 2,000 because they were with the naked eye that he was looking at them. Mm. 2,000 species is the most detailed study of a hedge ever made. Mm. Ever. Can't believe no one else has done this. Yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? Well, that's why he was saying it's bizarre how important they are that we know so little yeah. about what's in them, in a way. And well, also, they've been quite denigrated hedges. They've had a bad rep really? for ages. Definitely, when I was growing up, I thought that the hedge uh, was often quite new, right? Because you learn about enclosure. It's the big deal. Mm. God, it's drilled into you at school. The enclosure, agricultural revolution. You build hedges all around the fields. And there's this common misconception, and it's still on loads of sites today, that the hedges just came up in enclosure when the landowners locked off their fields. I don't fields. think every listener is going to know about enclosure. I think we should say a bit. No, that's in... if you don't remember, if you're not <laughs> so English like, and I, don't remember your year eight history. <laughs> so what is it? What is, I don't know this. In the agricultural revolution, landowners decided to end the common land usage policies that have been existing so far where everyone could graze their animals and plant what they wanted on common land and they enclose their land with fences and hedges yep. and that's where a lot of people think this grand misconception arises that hedges were all planted so loads of hedges in the south of england do come from the 17th and 18th century you basically cut down the entire of year eight history into about two sentences there then. we go and now i've told you it's wrong it's actually, <laughs> they're all really old wow welcome, like to, welcome to year nine bitches <laughs> <laughs> everything is a lie forget and, what you heard and like me in year eight i still stopped listening halfway through what was being said guarantee you can't define enclosure 10 seconds after hearing about it and so people thought we could cut them down because they're new so they won't they weren't part of the intrinsic landscape mm. that's full of these amazing ecosystems right. um, a lot of them are like between parishes for instance which oh, goes okay. back you know thousands of years and some even before that just people when we first got the sheeps over just trying to keep your sheep in one place yeah. kind of thing yeah, yeah. yeah they kind of function as motorways for species you know like mice get around the countryside on them the animals use them for navigation and they the you know the birds nesting it's really vital that they exist and the uk destroyed about half of its hedging in the 20th century so you would have been able to get to the moon Oops. and back again and maybe to the moon again <laughs> yeah. you know in the good old days in the 1930s and the reason the uk destroyed half its hedging give or take is because of hitler oh so all, he always gets the blame doesn't he get into that give or take all i hear about <laughs> that man so the UK wanted to be quite food sufficient after the Second World War because um, there have been a few problems uh, with food supplies uh, during the war. And so various governments incentivized farmers to make their fields much bigger, remove the hedges, join them all up, just, you know, so you could grow larger amounts of crops. And they were actually incentivized. Farmers were paid to get rid of their hedges. Mm, oh, and really? only in the last 20 years, I think, has it been truly appreciated just what a lot of damage this did to biodiversity and all sorts of things. 
And so now there are aims to build many more hedges, not only to fight climate change, but to build biodiversity. So it's, And against the Nazis? And to just keep the Nazis down, you know, <laughs> just to stop them coming back. Um, do you want some other hedge words, by the way? Oh, yeah. Sienna well, yeah, Zan has yeah. given us some great hedge words. These are actually words in the OED that have the word hedge in them. Um, so uh, it's a hedge good. hop. Do you know what hedge hopping is? Is that to, um, it's a, you, there's a field of hedgehogs and you're not allowed to touch the ground. It's like the floor is lava. It's you a game. To, yeah, you have to get to the Tramp, other side. Trampling a hedgehog with every bound. I'm not saying it's a nice game, I'm just saying. <laughs> Again, once you've torn the hedges down, why don't you do this hedgehog trampling game? <laughs> it's not that, thankfully. Uh, it's a colloquial term for flying your aircraft at a very low level. So you're as if you're oh, hopping oh, nice. over hedges. Lovely. Got it. Um, hedge wine is very poor quality wine and in fact hedge is used to mean poor quality uh, and also hedge wench do you know what a hedge wench is well a wench is a, a, a lusty woman so, mm. uh, and hedge is poor quality so it's a poor quality <laughs> lusty woman <laughs> this is a bit more literal it's a sex worker who plies their trade in a hedge oh golly that's a painful oh. are people paying extra for that or <laughs> you're going to get in a lot a, in of a hedge. in a hedge yeah we could go back to my place, actually. Just think about it now. <laughs> I do think the hedge is going to detract from the experience. There are 2,000 species and they're all watching at the moment. And I don't like it. Oh, God. A lot of ants up the bum. Do you know wow. what this proverb means? It's good sheltering under an old hedge. It's a very uh, old American I, I, proverb. Does it mean literally exactly what it sounds like? <laughs> it sounds like it's, it's, if you find an old hedge, you're probably going to be sheltered quite nicely. <laughs> It sounds like it does. It's actually more cryptic than that. It Ooh. means it's good to marry an older woman. Oh, she's the old wow. hedge. Because uh, I guess she's more experienced. experienced. Thicker. Thicker. Yeah. <laughs> Thicker. Gosh. Been, Been laid by many men yeah. before. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in the 1940s, prisoners of war in the US helped build a model of the Mississippi Basin that was about twice the size of the Vatican. Oh, wow. <laughs> God, that's actually so many elements in that fact that I'd be impressed if you got to the end of it. But So, I don't know what a model of the Mississippi Basin was mm. before... Hearing about this fact. Okay, does that mean you? Because you know what a model is, presumably. I certainly and do. And you know what the Mississippi <laughs> is. Yes, but, but I'm conceptually incapable of joining those two together. <laughs> is what we've learned. Well, for those of you who are, you know, imaginationally absent at home, it's a model of a river and its surrounding <laughs> but a land. River's made of water. Yeah. 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 So it's the, for water huh? um, in the model, they use water. They, have to, they also have to model the banks, otherwise that's just a puddle on the floor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've, mo you've modelled the, everything surrounding the river, yeah, basically, yeah, and then yeah. just pour water into it. Or like the yeah. floodplains and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, all yeah. The, all the land around it that might be affected by exactly. it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, why did we want to model it, I guess? Well, we wanted to figure out how it worked and get to know it better. So this was called the Mississippi River Basin Model Waterways Experiment Station near Clinton, <laughs> Mississippi, and... It was built because the Mississippi was always flooding and actually they just mm. had a couple of really awful floods. So in 1927, there was the worst flood in US history. 
1937, another bad one. And this guy called Eugene Raybould said, the problem we're having is that whenever there's a flood, we try and fix it. And this is the problem with flooding today still. But we try and fix it in the individual place where there was a flood. So we'll build a levee mm. or a dam. But that's not understanding the river as a whole. And that just has a knock-on effect further down. You're just kicking it further down the road. So what we need to do is we need to build the whole river and he was quite short on laborers because everyone was fighting in the war but what there were were quite a lot of german and italian prisoners of war and so they all must have been so confused when they were carted to prisoner of war camp in mississippi and told to build the mississippi river again for those men getting home after the war after the, oh hans we're so worried you know you were kept as a prisoner of war it must have been awful what did they make you do oh you know just really it's really difficult actually yeah but what were you doing hans were you maybe picking cotton in the fields or working in a mine yeah i mean you know we don't sort of mod, but, model, but surely, model building like that's it's <laughs> twice the size of the vatican i reckon there was a lot of earth being moved around yeah. right yeah it's not model building like a warhammer fanatic they didn't come to play with it it's basically that's what they were doing yeah. it feels to me like i wouldn't personally want to be part of that team you know given the choice between that and other prisoner of war labor i absolutely will be on model rail team fake river model railway i've given away my (laughs) (laughs) river modeling duty how big was it anna sorry i missed that so i haven't actually said i've just said it was about twice the size of the vatican Uh um and just you know how big the vatican is and you know what twice is can you not put those two concepts together (laughs) i can't actually think of how big the vatican because the vatican is, is is a whole city, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult. It's difficult. But it's not a big city, you know that. Much. <laughs> yeah, but okay, it's that still Rome. doesn't help. I reckon <laughs> it's about a square kilometer. Is it? It's well, I can give you another measure. Uh, it was also about the size of 120 football pitches. It was two hundred. It was two hundred and ten acres. We get it in hedges next time. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> distance to the moon. It's God it knows. Is so huge this thing. The streams in this thing are eight miles long in total. Like it's yeah, really big. Like, wow. Yeah, and the only way you could see it all was from an observation point that was four stories tall, wasn't it? Wow. So you had to climb right the way up, and then you so, could see so the whole cool. thing. Wow. Yeah. One gallon of water in the thing represented one point five million gallons of water in the real world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. The scale so cool good. I think five minutes of water running through the basin simulated an entire day of water running through the Mississippi wow. so you could quite quickly work out and it was super useful it was a few years after it was built um, there were some signs of flooding people getting a bit nervous signs of flooding in the Missouri River which is a tributary of the Mississippi the longest river in the US and so they simulated what was happening in the little model and they said oh shit yeah it's going to flood here and there not too much there build a dam there and they did and saved a few million quid that's amazing yeah i was thinking about the songs because it's it's you know really tied into blues and it's also Mm. a river that comes up a lot in songs and for me i love jeff like old man river like old man river jeff buckley drowned in the mississippi did he yeah and that you know so for me that was it's a river that i've always noticed in songs so i was looking into it and i found out that actually Actually, the Mississippi River actually had a sign to it, a, a songwriter and singer called Charlie Maguire, and he was the singing ranger. Um, what's, the, what's the job, sorry? He goes singing around. Ranger. Yeah, he writes songs about the Mississippi. I better use the word hippie quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Dippy, are you going for a dippy in the Mississippi? (laughs) It's going to get pretty nippy, get slippy. We we could do this This job. It's pretty easy. Yeah. No, he wrote he wrote a lot of songs in his time. So and the songs would embody the story of the Mississippi. So one song was called Great Mississippi. You know that was about where it starts and where it ends. Route one. Yeah. Rock Strata. When was this guy? Sorry. Two thousand three. Oh wow. 
wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the singing ranger is the only person that's ever been given this position. Right. Mm. And yeah, he wrote, you know, tons of songs, won lots of awards. Not not Grammys. No Grammys. <laughs> Was it awards for best song about the Mississippi written by the person employed by songs about the Mississippi? <laughs> I, I reckon we've got a chance this year with the, the old nippy song. <laughs> I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> Um, here's a cool thing about the Mississippi. It's yeah. a map that was published of the river. And it was published in 1866. And it's called the Ribbon Map of the Father of Waters. And it's a strip map. So the map was 11 feet long, but only three inches wide. Oh, my God. I know. It's really <laughs> funny. Wow. And strip maps used to be really big. So that these just... Well, really long. Really uh. long. <laughs> if you were planning a specific trip, and mm-hmm. this is ages, centuries ago, you might have a strip map if you were going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem because it's basically one route. And it says, turn left at this town and then go straight along here for another five miles and then turn right, whatever. Huh. And it was on a spool, basically. Oh, yeah. So you'd just spool along as you went. I think it was more for tourism purposes than for I think cartography. Cool. I might be wrong about this. I think they used to have like GPSs of those, did they? Yes, they did. did they? I met the guy who owns loads of them. <laughs> really? and I borrowed some from him. And you put a wristwatch on exactly like James says, like London to Brighton. Mm. You just load in the cartridge for London to Brighton. Oh. And then as you're driving along, you just wind on a bit. So and clever. Oh, wow. Crawley. Wow. Yeah, really fun. What happens if there's a, you know, a closed you're road? Stuffed. Yeah, you you're have stuffed. You, have, yeah. you can only go in that. It only tells you that you're on the right route. But. Or you need to have several, the whole back of your car is full of tiny <laughs> cartridges. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> James Robert Scott. You know him? No. He was in West Quincy, Missouri, uh, when there was a great flood of the Mississippi in 1993. So there was flooding happening all over the place, and they put lots of sandbags in and and levees or levees, or however Mm. however you pronounce that. Anyway, he decided that he was going to remove some of the sandbags and basically allow an area to flood. And it was very, no one died, but it's very dangerous. And also, Mm. you know, lots of people lost land and stuff like that. He claimed that he did it because his town was in trouble and he wanted to move the sandbags from one place to another to try and, you know, keep his town safe. Um, But then apparently he told his friend that he'd actually done it so that he could strand his wife on the other side of the river (laughs) so that he could have an affair. So he could uh, have an affair? Yeah. Uh, well, how, how long was he trying to strand her for? <laughs> well, a few weeks he was hoping that might happen. Yeah. Blimey. He, he maintains his innocence, I should say. He's in prison. They found him guilty. <laughs> uh, he's eligible for parole in 2023. Um, and that's, nice. for the, that's for the sandbag moving, not for the affair? Uh, yes. I <laughs> don't think it's illegal to have an affair. They're very puritanical. No, because um, all the damage that it caused. Yeah, of course. It was billions of dollars of damage. What? One figure I read was 15 billion. How many sandbags did he move? Well, you only need... You only need to remove one finger from (laughs) the dam and then everything goes. Yeah, that's true. And you're going to be needing those fingers when you're conducting your illicit (laughs) extramarital affair. There are easier ways to have affairs, aren't there? It feels like it. that? Get a hedge. Why not Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that one of the few historians to use the term Dark Ages is Professor Ken Dark. (laughs) That's funny. It's funny having a professor called Ken. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I think that's funny enough. Why? <laughs> what? My name is Ken. Ken. <laughs> because Ken in Scots, old Scots means knowledge. Yeah. Like your Ken. Beyond your and Ken. So, and he's a professor. So is that what you found funny about that? No, God, it does mean knowledge. You're right. And it makes me think that Ken of Barbie and Ken has sunk a long way, hasn't he? Since the Kens of your... Are they called the Dark Ages? After Ken. After Ken Dark. Now then, oh, I should call it the Ken Ages. This is just... <laughs> Ken, ages. Ken Ages ago. <laughs> Very good. Um, this is just a complete coincidence, really, I think. Um, so it's an article that I read on the website of the University of Sheffield, uh, and it's about English heritage. So they decided to do a handbook and some websites and stuff like that where they called the period between 400 AD and 1066 the Dark Ages. And then there was a huge sort of campaign of a lot of Twitter historians saying, and other historians, but saying, you know, you can't call it the Dark Ages. What it does is it makes people think it's a terrible time where people had an awful life and stuff like that. Mm. And, and it was, you know, that's not really what Dark Ages means. But anyway, English Heritage said that the reason that we're calling it that is because there is this professor called Professor Ken Dark, and he calls it the Dark Ages. He's a proper professor, so we should be able to call it that as well. Uh, a lot of people pointed out that the the article that Ken Dark wrote was slightly, you know, esoteric. It was about the Byzantine era. It wasn't about the British Dark Ages oh. or the early modern period. Um, if you look at Ken Dark's work, which I have done quite a lot um you'll find that you know he's done something recently where he talks about illuminating the dark ages and trying to bring light into the dark ages and mm. you know he he's not calling them the dark ages because his name is ken dark i just want to make that really clear. that's what he wants yeah. you to think <laughs> <laughs> there's an argument that they basically just wanted to kind of shut down the argument and say you know here's some evidence this is why we did it and, you know. and yet if you asked any of those historians would you like to go and live Exactly. 430 AD forever you can't come back it's not a cool <laughs> history trip well you, you can take so. your family you can take, take your, your family, family. Well, for instance, there's one historian called Charles West who said if the term Dark Ages really must be used, it should at least be reserved for periods of true inhumanity and barbarity, such as the 20th century. Oh, God. Oh, I do think boy. we've got very snowflakey about the Dark Ages. Come on, it's the one group of people that we can still offend and they can never complain, all right? It's people in history. They can't do anything about it. Just let's call them all ignorant. Who cares? They're not coming back. Well, I think the point is that the word dark is not supposed to be ignorant, right? No, it's not supposed no. to be barbarian. It's supposed to be a time where we did not have much information about it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's what it was originally. But people have in the past, like popular historians of kind of in the you know 70s and 80s have said that the Dark Ages was a time of darkness and difficulty. And, but I think they have. You know. it has also been used since it, the concept kind of arose yeah. of the Dark Ages to be denigrating. And, got- it has al- and there, there has always been this idea that... That. It's also a very uncultured time. Yeah. Um, there was, was, you know, the Romans. The Roman, after the Romans, before the Renaissance. Mm. Before, um, the, before the Normans. They were, doing, they were yeah. doing bugger all then. It was Francesco Petrarca, right? Who coined Petrarch, it. Yeah. Petrarch, well, yeah, sorry. No, you're just giving him his proper, proper fancy his name. His proper fancy name, yeah. Petrarch. Petrarch. And uh, yeah, basically complaining that there were no good books to read, which I find amazing. Because then it did, as you we, say, we evolve. Say who Petrarch was. He's just a guy, right? Yeah, just a guy. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not one of the... No, he's an Italian scholar. I mean, he was, yeah, he was yeah. big in the 14th po- century. Great poet. Uh, yeah, I haven't read mm-hmm. it, but... It, he wrote more than one. 
Get out. No, he was couple. the official poet of the Tiber, <laughs> wasn't he? <laughs> but it does, um, as you say, sort of mean like it was when science was being brushed away and religion was coming in. And, yeah. And as a result, it was a dark age for yeah. the mind. Yeah. Yeah. As no, well as there being no records. That's yeah. it's been yeah. And let's are, be honest. There aren't full records exactly. of what was going on. I know. I, I completely agree. I agree with you. There were other names given to the, uh, what are we calling them? Early Modern, Middle Ages. Early Middle Ages yeah. that were um, published in various books. So they included the Barbarous Ages. It sounds pretty, you know. Uh, the Obscure Ages, which I quite like. <laughs> yeah. um, makes them sound quite cool. The Monkish Ages. Oh, yeah. Absolutely no argument with that. And uh, the Muddy Ages. Those are all very really because yeah. then the Mississippi is known as the old muddy, isn't it? Is I think, it? yeah. Mm. Well, this would have been yeah, or the, the big muddy, I think, maybe the big muddy. No relation to the muddy ages, <laughs> I don't, don't think, think so. <laughs> uh, also, the um, dark ages could be used to describe the period from 1100 BC to 750 BC, um, which was between the collapse of the Bronze Age civilization in Greece and the beginning of the Archaic Age in Greece. Oh, yeah, um, the great dark ages, or it could be from the start of the universe to 13.2 billion years ago which was between the start of the universe and the creation of the first stars that's called the dark ages as well so oh but people get offended don't they those little lumps of dust in the air get offended now if we call them the dark ages i just don't see that the little bits of dust in the air are going to be able to come back and get offended I just not see it you guys are not taking into account that time travel will happen <laughs> one day and that bit for a bit of dust will jump down my throat exactly um, I read in one book, this is a book called Europe A History, that the Middle Ages originally meant the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Oh, and wow. since the second coming hasn't, as far as we know, happened, we're still technically in the Middle Ages now. That's very exciting. That's cool. Yeah. 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 And thank God, because I always get really anxious that we're in the modern time and there's nowhere to go after modern. So that's yeah. good to know that we're actually still in the middle. So if anyone says that I'm middle-aged, I could say, yes, well, technically <laughs> I am middle-aged because the second yeah. coming of Christ hasn't but happened. But so are you. So <laughs> <laughs> we all are, yeah. Um, one thing that the Dark Ages, doing the finger quotes there, gave us, which is quite exciting just in reference to literature, was spaces in between words. Um, so every word, as we know, back in old literature, used to be bunged together. No spaces, really hard to tell what's the next word. Mm. And um, it was in that period the monks started going, let's, let's put a little... We'll put a space in between those two words. What do you reckon? It's so quite... they didn't write books of their own, but they did at least introduce some spaces into the books that already existed. Yeah. Fair it's enough. funny because these days, you know, books have word counts, don't they? You're like, oh, this book is 100,000 words. Whereas I guess in those days, we're like, how long is your manuscript? <laughs> well, it's one word, like all the other, <laughs> all the other books. Yeah. What a word. <laughs> it's one very specific word. Yeah. Yeah. Like so a on... word with you. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> Um, the Greek Dark Ages. I love the Greek Dark Ages. Oh, yeah. Are they They're... called the Greek Dark Ages? Is that contentious as well? Um, oh, oh, probably. Who, give, who gives us stuff? <laughs> oh, I'm signing up with Team Anna on this one. Yes. Got it. Oh, God, I feel like I'm in bad company now. <laughs> um so they're, they're such a mystery. They are, as James was saying, this period at the end of the Bronze Age. And, um, but they, what I always loved about them is that they happened because of the invasion of the Sea Peoples. Um, mm. Do you know about this? And you will love the Sea Peoples, Dan. They're so great. I actually can't believe that uh, we haven't discussed them before. This is the Class 8 talk that I listen to. <laughs> Here we go. 
basically they're a group of people we don't know if they existed but they're currently historians best explanation for why in what was it 1100 bc oh, yeah. civilization just collapsed so we had this amazing like big palace based states the mycenic empire minoans exactly um cool. and then it all just vanished and also ancient egypt as well vanished overnight and didn't come back until the greeks w- worked out how to write an alphabet and stuff 400 years later got back on their feet and historians think it's because there was someone called the sea peoples waltzing yeah. around the mediterranean God, strange good. beings who Damn. went and invaded go on well, no, so okay are they were they of the sea or were they just living on boats? Well, it's not... Um, you mean, were they made sorry, of water? What is, what is the difference like in a... your mind, Dan, between being of the sea and... Well, did they live on, were they like Aquaman? Or were they a, so, a pirate on a boat? The more serious historians, I think, discount the merman, mermaid explanation of sea peoples and say they're probably just boating What does pirates. Ken Dark say about them? That's what I want to know. Um, they obviously the dark ages that aren't called the dark ages were whole of Europe um, mm. and it was partly this whole mini kingdoms thing everyone is dog can be a king that defined them because it was all so splintered and it was the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Norogoths and the Demigoths and stuff who were all fighting each other weren't they for hundreds of years and the Vandals and the Alans which I think we've mentioned before <laughs> yes. uh, the Alans tribe who I didn't realise brought us great Danes so that's something else the Dark Ages gave us. The Alans, who were Iranian, um, were really? known for their... So the Great Danes aren't Danish? I think they must have d- got taken a route via Denmark before they got there, wow. before they evolved into what they are today. They brought the fighting dogs that led to Great Danes. Cool. Okay. But then the person who saw, I would say, who kind of presaged the end of this non-Dark Ages, Dark Ages, mm. was probably Charlemagne, mm. do we think? As in, he just unified Europe, so he did that it was a big deal and you know how he was crowned emperor how like the, the ceremony or the, yeah how yeah the ceremony be, no uh, oh did, is he one of those strange people who crowned themselves no quite the opposite apparently opposite. was crowned by someone else <laughs> <laughs> there you go at the end end of fact he was crowned against his will according to the court scribe who might have been trying to make him sound really so humble. he was running away while someone was chasing him with a crown <laughs> Exactly. Um, 800 AD, Christmas Day, he'd gone to Rome and the Pope decided he's going to crown him emperor of this whole bunch of Western Europe. Okay. And he sneaks up behind Charlemagne while Charlemagne's praying and pops a crown on his head. Apparently Charlemagne just stood up and went, oh my gosh, no, what, me? I couldn't. I couldn't possibly. And then he became, you know, the greatest. It's a good story, isn't it? It's a good because, story. Because, like, one of them's praying, so he's holy, and yeah. he didn't really want it. Well, actually, probably happened. They both got really pissed one night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was it Charlemagne who supposedly had the asbestos tablecloth? Oh, yeah, that is that him. him. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That was just sort of like his, his dinner party trick, wasn't it? He would... Um, um, he would throw it into a fire into a so fire. you wouldn't have to clean it because asbestos oh, doesn't wow. burn. So you put it in the fire, it would kind of sterilize, and then you pull it out again, and you could use it again. This was, of course, before they knew about mesothelioma, the terrible lung disease that they presumably all got back I then. think you only get that from little shards of asbestos. If you have a full okay. tablecloth, you'll be fine. You're but all right. bits, isn't it that bits come off it and then you inhale them? I mean, I'm sure no one was living long enough to worry about <laughs> the long-term yeah. effects of an asbestos table. Like, there were more pressing health concerns yeah. in the age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they cleared the table. Um, I don't know if he, yes, I don't know if he did that trick where everything stayed underneath, but even a kind of swipe. Um, Have you ever done that trick, by the way? No, I've tried it once. It's hard. It's it is hard. harder than you think. Like, does it actually work? I think I've you seen can. you do it. Yeah, well, I used to be a waiter and I used to try it a lot. 
and like most of the time you can't really do it and so there's a trick to it but yeah you were the most fired waiter in the north of England for a while <laughs> weren't you <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the metal used to make Grammy Award trophies is called Grammium. <laughs> Amazing. What a <Yeah>. coincidence. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a trademarked metal alloy, a zinc alloy, that a guy called John Billings has patented, and he is the guy who makes the Grammy Awards, and he's made them for decades now. And what I didn't realize was... It's a little team that assembles every year the Grammys and it's a, basically a one-shop operation where not only do they make these Grammys but then they put them in a van and they drive 2,000 or something miles across the country to deliver it personally. Um, John Billings himself would be sitting in the car doing this and um, he is the Grammy man. And it's, he... they, use a, they use a strip map to get there. Very exciting. One year they went off course, it was a disaster. There were no Grammys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's um yeah, so this guy he he joined when he was quite young. There was a previous person making the Grammys, and since he took over, he changed the design of the Grammys, which is what they are today, and he also came up with this new stronger alloy because all of the other previous Grammys were quite flimsy and would break and he thought this needs to be you know did they actually powerful. break did people take Grammys home yeah. and then you put them down and it just they crumbles they still do they still do yeah they still break but they broke a lot oh, more dear. easy I think it was so the, the Grammys if you don't know what they are it is a gramophone uh that is the shape of the trophy and so obviously and i suppose got... it's a music award in america is the other yeah yeah it's the <laughs> it's the biggest music award in america and um the trophy is in the shape of a gramophone and it was the particularly the arm that was with the stylus on the end that was particularly flimsy and that oh, okay. was the bit when he redesigned it uh that he wanted to get stronger adele the singer once snapped part of her grammy on stage she dropped it on stage and broke part of it off and in 2010 taylor swift was carrying four grammys and she dropped one of them and it broke into pieces oh, and what happens is when it breaks into pieces you send it back yeah. uh, and they fix it for you mr billings fix it for you but she wrote oops on the side of the one she broke and he now has that on in his office on the side a Taylor Swift broken Grammy uh, and he gave her a new one uh, that's great really? I wonder that's if great. she broke the so the Grammys that we the see the stunt the yeah. stunt there are stunt yeah, yeah, yeah. Grammys so. and that's what he drives across the country as well he drives the stunt ones across the country yeah. then drives them back as well before yeah. and after so, each sorry what is a stunt Grammy a stunt Grammy it's is one that one. can do amazing tricks so it throws itself <laughs> at skyscrapers tightrope walks so the idea is that the real Grammys that are going to be given to everyone who's won them need yeah. to be have their name put on it and so on and they can't do that on the night so he drives the fake Grammys that you see them holding at the award ceremony and then they give them back and then the real Grammy they, so those are not real Grammys well they're no. obviously well they used they used every single year yeah the same ones are used every year so if you get a Grammy next year Andy which I'm sure you're hoping for well, I'm trying <laughs> then um, you will get one that might have been had by Adele a few years ago oh or by God. Taylor Swift or whatever because wow. when he gets the stunt Grammys home he cleans them with washing up liquid to get rid of any fingerprints or anything like that and then just puts them into storage and then the next year he takes them back nice so he just every year drives a load of grammys across america and then drives them back the other way yeah yeah you would think he would have a storage unit where he could just leave them <laughs> it does seem like you that know, would be sensible in the fishing wouldn't it yeah mm. and then what does he do with the actual one story does he then post them out 
first class? I think or he, does he might also them? drive those ones as well. But then does he have to, has to drive around every single home of every single Grammy winner? No, I'm sure he takes them to Mr. Grammy, who then hands them over to the people. There's a distribution network, you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. There would be There's someone... a GDPR issue if he knows where all these people live as well. That would be an amazing bit of information to have, <laughs> just all the addresses of all the most famous musicians in the world. Yeah. yeah. So the Grammys, Yeah. This, this is a thing that started in the late 1950s, and the idea behind it was that they wanted to have something that represented the you know output of musicians it was called the grammy because they had a competition where they asked the americans what do you want to call this and i think it was a girl who wrote in and said and these these um trophies are made out of grammyum so why don't we call it the <laughs> <Grammys?"> <laughs> <laughs> um, they she was she a bunch of people suggested it but she was the first person whose letter got read with the suggestion of grammy i think she was a new orleans secretary called rose j elizabeth danner and um she was given 25 free lps as a gift because lots of people yeah, wrote yeah. in suggesting Grammy but her letter was open first huh. but she lived until February 2014 so she could have seen uh, Robin Thicke performing Blurred Lines Robin <laughs> 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 Thicke yeah I used to call him that and I, I now on principle refuse to call him Robin uh-huh. by any other name I reckon if you were at school with Robin Thicke that's what you would call him <laughs> oh what a Thicke uh, there have been some pretty hideous decisions from the Grammy board over the years haven't there feels like you've got a few up your sleeve there Anna well I was reading an article written in 1993 so some of these wrongs have been corrected now but even so a New York Times article written in 1993 about how they just never seem to pick the right people so uh, by 1993 here are people who hadn't won a Grammy Eric Clapton the Beach Boys the Supremes the Grateful Dead the Jackson 5 Led Zeppelin Etta James the Queen Van Morrison the Queen the Queen the Queen has won the Grammys every year of course lovely voice Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones the only Grammy they ever won was Lifetime Achievement okay. at that point because they, they sometimes do this thing where I think the judges think years afterwards oh shit they did turn out to be really good so oh then they God, toss a light we forgot Led Zeppelin, <laughs> forgot Led yeah. Zeppelin yeah. those were busy years though we're talking about in terms of rock you know Hendrix would have been up against the Beatles up against that was a crowd they didn't like rock though that was that was always Mm. the thing with the Grammys they were almost set up as an antidote to what they considered was I think was called anti-music um, by the people who wanted the Grammys to come about. Um, they wanted to celebrate quality music, not anti-music like R&B and rock, which it was like, this is a flash in the pan. Wow. The uh, most Grammys is by George Salty. Um, and Salty's Ring actually has been twice voted the greatest recording ever made. What? I don't know if you know Salty's Ring. No. Salty's, no. His, his cycle? It's, cycle. <laughs> it's Wagner, yeah. Oh. He's a conductor, and so he's conducted lots and lots of things, won loads and loads of Grammys, won 31 as a recording artist. Uh, and yeah, Salty's Ring is one of the greatest musical pieces wow. ever made, and it's not funny in any way. And he was the conductor at the Covent Garden Opera House. Ooh. And when he first came here, um, because obviously we're in Covent Garden at the moment, uh, there was a like a clique in Covent Garden that really, really hated him because they didn't like when new musical directors came in. They really hated it. And so when he first arrived, people threw rotten vegetables at him in the street and his car was vandalised outside Covent Garden Theatre with the words salty must go scratched into his paintwork. Wow, that doesn't sound like the actions of opera fans. It's just cliques, isn't it? You know, it's just groups of people don't like outsiders coming in with their salty ways. (laughs) They called him. They called him the screaming skull. Yeah, really. Um, But I don't know if that. I don't think that was a criticism. I think that was more like he was quite a vigorous man and he was bald. 
Oh, yeah. Um, but, you, you know, conductors, they do a lot of, like, shouting and gesticulating. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, screaming skull. I really like the non-famous, the non-televised Grammy categories. I just think they're oh, yeah. great. Because there are so many. I didn't realise there are dozens and dozens of categories. <laughs> but things like Best Tropical Latin Album or Best Contemporary Christian Music Performance Slash Song. Yeah. And it has, there is there's a screening <laughs> committee which assesses whether or not you are actually fitting into that category or not because it would be much easier I think to get a Grammy for some of these things where yeah but you can't fewer. put Led Zeppelin in the um, Christian you know, no but we, could, we the four of us could, to have could make a tropical Latin album oh we mm. could oh I see just game the system that way by entering some of the less popular categories yeah. and would that be part of our Mississippi River oeuvre or is the tropical Latin album like the follow up uh, I don't think New Orleans even is in the tropics, is it? I don't think. No, I don't think it could <laughs> no, be. I suspect not. But okay, here's one we could win: best album notes. Oh yeah, which I, really feels like I a, know a winner of that. As in, not personally, but I know someone who has won that award. Who? What are the I, album notes? Are they like the lyrics? The, that well, you're minor, writing? Do you know like the sleeve notes. notes that you used to get in a CD yeah. or in an LP? And young like listeners would have completely. Yeah, you, yeah, I do. Yeah. Where you write like Beyonce used. To, I remember in Destiny's Child, they all wrote how much they loved God. I found it so boring reading those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, they um, might not have won that year's best album notes uh, category. Dan, who do you know who's been there? Yeah, Steve Martin, the comedian, has oh, won. I bet he's written some really good album notes. Yeah. yeah, for his banjo albums, not for his comedy albums, right. but yeah. you it feels like it would play to his strengths. Do you know Steve Martin? No, that's when I said. I know someone and then I uh, qualified it by saying I don't know them right <laughs> so it was the last statement was true yeah okay. is, is aware of <laughs> I know Robin Thicke although I don't know how to say his name <laughs> uh, uh, it's very controversial the way they vote in the Grammys oh yeah because it's well until this year it was super secret mm. uh, it sounds quite exciting and I think what what used to happen was winners were decided by this like 12,000 strong recording academy bunch of voters who um, are like <laughs> they don't all stand in a room and put their hands up and stuff right yeah they, they crush in um, Show of hands. and yeah someone has to count them they I guess it's probably done by post and they're musicians and music makers <laughs> probably email these days <laughs> it was in the 90s that it changed John Billings goes around gets them in the back of the van picks up the next one <laughs> but that's just the fake ones that he brings <laughs> Um, so yeah it used to be done by this 12,000 strong a bunch of voters uh, but then I think partly because the wars just kept going so wrong um, and they just kept giving it to weird people they had to change the rules and I think the straw that broke the camel's back came in the early 90s when over uh, album of the year was up and Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA was released and Prince's Purple Rain was released and Lionel Richie's Can't Slow Down won and everyone said we didn't like that that's not as good as the other two and really? so um, they formed a secret committee which basically goes through all the 12,000 huh. votes and takes out the duds because Whoa. actually you would think that having a larger group 12,000 would be more likely to give you a democratic answer right yeah, yeah. Give you the best. yeah. You but a democratic so. answer isn't necessarily the best answer James is that not right okay that's um, <laughs> my <laughs> view and I have my one way ticket to Russia is <laughs> just come through <laughs> And yeah, people got quite pissed off by the secret committee because no one knew how they voted or why they voted. And there's someone called The Weekend, I think. Oh, The Weekend. The Weekend. Oh, right. Well, it's spelled The Weekend. Weekend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they. Friend of Robin Thicke, I believe. (laughs) This show has certainly weakened over the years, hasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, so it's spelled like Weekend. Anyway, but without any. So um, he. Well, with two E's. <laughs> <laughs> but not three. 
Anyway, The Weeknd got annoyed that he hadn't got nominated. I think it's pronounced The Weeknd. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, The Weeknd. I just, I want a new podcast where we give Anna the name of all the bands that are in the charts and see if she can pronounce them. They've asked me to read out the nominations next year. I'm quite nervous now. Lil Nas the 10th? <laughs> I did another one, nine other Lil Nas's. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes up there, so do check them out and uh, come back again next week. We'll be here with another batch of facts. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.